What's up, guys? Just a quick update. The episodes this week are going to be a little shorter than usual. That's right. I said episodes. We're going to drop another full episode on Thursday this week, so make sure to come back for that. All right, on to the good stuff. The tavern doors crashed open. Elias staggered in, weeping, his nose broken. He'd practically collapsed in her arms. Bandits. That's what he told her. He painted a picture of the brawler's heroic last stand, shouting at Elias to run for help while he held the outlaws off. She never saw the body. They burned an empty casket while a bagpipe played. What's up, you guys? Welcome back to another episode. If you're not caught up yet, I will have a link to the full playlist in the video description, so make sure to check that out. Question of the day, what is the worst film adaptation of a fantasy novel? If you stick around to the end of the episode, I'll let you know mine, but I want to hear your answers in the comments. All right, on to the good stuff. I'm Josh Call, and this is Last Coliseum. By an hour past midnight, Lady Moonrise was exhausted. Her hands were cramped, and the tips of her fingers were raw despite the calluses she'd worked hard to put there over the course of several seven years. Her tongue felt thick and dry like a slab of day-old bacon as her voice rang out clear and sweet through the taproom of the Eidolon. Even this late, every one of the tables arranged in a horseshoe shape around her little stage was packed out. Wealthy merchants mostly, with a handful of lesser nobles and a few high-ranking keepers dressed down in civilian clothes. Their faces were bathed in blues and greens and golds flung by the colored glass lanterns on each table. But the expressions were the same. They were ever the same. Wrapped and dreamy and flushed with drink, heads propped on their elbows as the fiddler worked her spell. It was a far cry from when she'd come to the edge. For more years than she'd have cared to admit, she'd plied her trade in seedy grog shops on the edge of the city's outer fringe, fighting to be heard over nightly brawls and fending off groping hands from the especially drunk and lascivious. There were few things quite so satisfying as sinking her knee into a lecher's eggs and watching him crumple. All of that was long before the silver started flowing, of course. Long before fame, what she had of fame, anyway. Long before she'd taken the name Moonrise and made off with the hearts of a generation of minor lords and second sons. In those days, she'd just been Amatha, playing for pennies on a second-hand fiddle that could never quite keep its tune. Finishing her song, she swept the instrument from her neck and bowed low as applause broke out across the taproom. She reached for her fiddle case, which lay open on the stage in front of her and was lined with velvet. Her audience groaned. They called out for one more song, one more round, always one more. She frowned slightly, but it quickly gave way to that coquettish smile she'd mastered alongside her music. One more, she agreed, relenting. A sigh seemed to sweep through the taproom. But you'll have to help me on this one. Agreed? A chorus of eyes and hear-hears echoed back. She rested her chin on the base of the fiddle, and she played. A cheer swept through the crowd. From the coppers to the keep, everyone knew the maid, the mouse, and the meat pie from the time they could talk. The melody to the old drinking song was simple, and she played it with an easy grace, same as a thousand nights before. Pray tell who's tapping at my door did say the fair young maid My promise said has gone to Worgen's enemies arrayed And whiles he's gone I've slaved to bake a pie for his return With meat and gravy stuffed to slake his hunger for a turn Lighty-dighty-dighty-dighty-dighty-dighty-dighty-dighty-dighty-dighty-dighty-dighty-dighty-dighty-dighty-dighty-dighty-dighty-dighty-dighty-dighty-dighty-dighty-dighty-dighty
It took her back to the old days. Even highborn ponces could roar the mouse's impish reply with the best of them, stamping their silk-shod feet and wrapping their tumblers on the tables. The half-smile she wore stretched a little wider. This was why she loved what she did. Her eyes swept across the crowd and alighted on the doorway, on the apparition standing there. Sudden panic wrenched her heart sideways. His face was all in ruins. The nose mashed flat, the lips bloody and ragged, both cheeks above his ruddy beard shiny and swollen. His hood was drawn, but she could feel his eyes on her. He looked about as shocked as she was. He seemed so out of place amid all the Eidolon's ornate decoration that for half a second she was certain she'd imagined him. Her fingers struck a wrong note. It rang out like a sheep's bleat. Not that the crowd noticed. They were both too drunk and too loud to notice much of anything. It was a blessed relief to her aching fingers when she stowed the fiddle and clapped along for six more verses. When she looked at the doorway a second time, she took care to keep that porcelain smile fixed on her features. He'd pulled aside one of the barmaids and was talking to her. That was a relief. At least Am wasn't imagining things. The look on the girl's face was one of fright and revulsion as she fought not to break his gaze. She glanced up at Amatha on the stage, and the fiddler quickly averted her eyes. When she allowed them to trail back to the doorway, the stranger was gone. The crowd was still singing when she took her final bow and marched resolutely off the stage with her fiddle case slung over her shoulder. The barmaid was talking to Berta and Finch, who between them ran the Eidolon. Amatha cut a path straight toward them. Mindy, who was that? The barmaid's face was splotchy red and guttered with tear tracks. I don't know, but he frightened me, she whimpered. Said he knew you. This last came with a hint of accusation. Asked where your room is. Berta's frown was reflected in the polished bar top. Mine? She felt the claw around her heart tighten its grip a little. I've never seen him before. Where'd he go? I didn't see. I think he left. Finch stood up. How's about I come up with you, he offered. Have a poke around. Make sure it's all clear. His powerful arms were folded across his vast belly. You're sweet, Finch. But if Mindy says he left... She shook her head. I'll give a shout if I need you. To Berta, she added, Pour me a tumble before I head up? The tap mistress did so, and she knocked it back quick and slipped up the stairs before any of her admirers could waylay her with offers of drink or marriage. She found Yaren sitting on the stairs, his hands stuffed full of coins. He was separating them into piles. The porter's mop and bucket were leaning against the wall, forgotten. Where'd you get all that? She asked, equally amused and incredulous. Yaren saw her and went red. He scooped up his loot and stuffed it into his pockets. She giggled and climbed past him. Night, Yar. Night, Am, he echoed. The stairs ended at a short hallway on the top floor with only two doors on the left and the right. The smaller room was Amethyst. The other was empty. In the two years since she'd been contracted to play the Eidolon, she'd never seen anyone coming or going from the other room. Once she'd asked Finch why they never rented it, he'd looked away and told her that they wanted to give Lady Moonrise all the privacy she was due. At the time, it struck her as an odd answer, but Berta and Finch had been like parents to her and she let the matter drop. She'd taken three steps down the corridor when her heart stopped. Her door was open. Her head spun, with sudden fear and the brandy she'd gulped down. 
Her first thought was the mashed-faced apparition who towered over little Mindy. She was suddenly keenly aware that Finch, big softy though he was, was four stories down in the kitchen. Get a grip, Em, she said under her breath. The door wasn't open, it was cracked only half an inch. Besides, she left it unlocked or wide open as often as not. She'd been rushing to get to stage this evening, hadn't she? She set the fiddle down with a thud as she crept toward the door. Almost unbidden, her hand slipped to the knife she kept secreted in the laces of her bodice. It pierced the long shadows in front of her as she crept into her room. A voice beside her grated, I didn't mean to scare you. The icy claw clamped hard on her liver. She gave an inarticulate cry and slashed at the voice. Something batted her hand and the silver streak that was her blade arced out of true. She wasn't done. With a courage born of desperation and the two fingers of liquor buzzing through her bloodstream, she followed the creak of his feet on the floorboards and lunged through the darkness. This time a hand that was rough like old leather locked around her wrist and pinned her knife hand to one of the columns of her four-poster. Amatha! Who are you? His head was silhouetted in the far window. He knocked her hand aside as she clawed at his face. She tried to pry his fingers off of her knife hand. He let go as she pulled and she almost fell over. She scrambled away from him, careful to keep the knife between them. The barracks is two streets over, she warned. She was inching back toward the door, which had slammed shut during the scuffle. If I scream, the Grey Cloaks will be here in seconds. The man in the window hadn't moved. I'm not gonna hurt you. Who are you? She repeated. She found the door handle. She had slightly more confidence with the cool brass under her palm. If he took one step toward her, she was down the hall and gone. How do you know my name? I shouldn't have come here, the stranger rasped. He sounded exhausted. Do I know you? Her jaw tightened as the silhouette moved. For an instant, she saw his profile lined in silver. Then his back was to her as he glared out the recessed window that overlooked the empty street and a choppy sea of rooftops to the west. You'll be in danger now, he muttered. She opened the door. A shaft of lamplight spilled into her little attic room. Look, why don't... Why don't you come downstairs and, and we can talk this through? Downstairs, where Finch was standing by to toss this nutter out on his ear. He wasn't listening. I just... I saw you and... He dropped his cloak and she flinched. She stumbled back into the hallway. The stranger's voice trailed after her. Hello, Sparrow. She didn't mean for her eyes to open. She tried to forget the old name he'd had for her. Almost succeeded. She saw him. The knife thumped into the floorboards between her feet. That's... that's impossible. The hallway melted around her. It was seven years ago. She'd gone to some gilded grog shop to wait for Haytham, trading forced pleasantries with the oblivious richling who'd brought her there. The tavern doors crashed open. Elias staggered in, weeping, his nose broken. He'd practically collapsed in her arms. Bandits. That's what he told her. He painted a picture of the brawler's heroic last stand, shouting at Elias to run for help while he held the outlaws off. Elias had run for the nearest keeper patrol, but by the time the Grey Cloaks came, you died. She never saw the body. They burned an empty casket while a bagpipe played. Almost, he rumbled. He turned to look at her. His chest and stomach were a lattice of scars. Sometimes I wished I had. She remembered the way grief had sucked her under like a sinkhole after the funeral. For moons after, she'd slept in one of his old tunics until the scent of him was washed out completely. After that, she'd been truly lost. 
Anger sparked bright in her chest. She felt the heat rise to her cheeks. So what? You just... you left? She advanced on him. Her shadow was long and monstrous, and it engulfed him. Five years, and you didn't say so much as name survive? I thought you were dead. No. By the time I... His mangled face was screwed up with emotion. A red tear leaked from the corner of his eye and disappeared into the matted snarl of his beard. I'm sorry. He reached for her. Don't touch me, she spat. I wanted to tell you, he grated. I did. He sounded so mournful. She broke his gaze and busied herself lighting the lamp that lay on her small desk in the corner. Her hands shook. An orb of candlelight bloomed, casting long shadows across the attic. There was a round throw rug at the foot of her four-poster, the sheets in disarray behind a translucent curtain. A large, darkwood wardrobe crouched in the corner with a small chest wedged between its clawed feet. What happened to your face? Amatha muttered, not looking at the battered mess of it. Business, her eyes flashed. Is that why you're back? Business? He didn't answer. Gradually, she let her eyes trail across him. His skin was worn and nut-colored. There were new scars over the old ones she remembered, worst of all the white lightning stripe that carved slantways across his face over the bridge of his nose. His knuckles were split and swollen, blood pattered onto her floor in an irregular drip. He stank of sweat and the road. Where were you? West. I'd have come back if I could. Why couldn't you? Men tried to kill me, he growled. She recalled the men she'd seen hanging around him more and more toward the end, dark men of a kind she remembered from her old days playing in dram houses. Not the sort of handsy sot who was cured with a swift kick in the bits, the sort of men who delighted in evil, made a sport of it. They'd argued about it on the day he disappeared. You could have told me, she insisted. I wanted to, he shrugged. It was too late. She felt a flicker of curiosity in the back of her mind, seven years on the unforgiving hard pan out west. All those new scars layered over the old. Why come back now? He hesitated, wondering whether to tell her. Even beat to hell a seven-year on, she could read his face like a tavern sign. I have a debt to settle. Whose debt? He didn't answer. You said I'm in danger. You owe me that. He didn't answer. She glanced at the knife embedded in the floorboards. I don't have anything to do with you, she muttered. Why would they come after me? To get to me. I don't know you, she snapped. He flinched as though she'd slapped him. It won't matter, he said in a low voice. If they think they can use you. He shook his head. His gray eyes found her green ones. The left was ringed with blood. She fought not to look away. I wouldn't involve you. But you already are. He said it with such grim certainty. The dull heat of her anger was momentarily replaced by a hot flood of fear. She tasted copper. I, I, I could leave town? She'd been planning on it for a while. For moons, letters had been coming in from all corners of the Dominion, pleading with her to come play the taprooms of Nexus, Blackport, Sweetwater. Twice a turn, she'd been taking a sliver of her earnings and secreting them away in a lockbox under one of her floorboards for just such a journey. The brawler nodded. Good. How far can you go? How long do I need? A moon? After that, I'm gone. She didn't press him again over what the debt was. The wounds on his face meant the fighting pits, or worse. It meant the dark men he'd been running with. 
She could only imagine the black purpose that had brought him across how many leagues so many years on. She'd seen the way his jaw tightened when she asked about it. In the five years she'd loved him, Amatha hated the pits, hated seeing him shuffle home, mangled beyond all recognition. She'd tried and failed to get him to stop. It was affection, sympathy, revulsion, all rolled into one sickish feeling at the bottom of her gut. Looking at him now, still not altogether believing he was here, she felt a finger of that same sickish feeling scrape along the underside of her belly. Where will you go? After. He looked at her long and didn't reply. Away, he said after a minute, and you'll have your life back. He scooped his cloak off the floor and slung it around his shoulders. She sat watching him at the edge of her four-poster. Haytham, the brawler paused in the doorway. I'm... I'm glad you're alive, she said, casting her eyes at the floor. His features were invisible, his big frame silhouetted by the hall light. Good night, Amatha. She watched him go, her mind still reeling. She waited until the creak of the floorboards had faded, then she went to fetch her fiddle case from the hall. He was still there, standing before the other door, looking at something small that was cupped in his hand. She slid past him and hefted the heavy case over her shoulder. When she turned, he'd plucked her knife from the floor. He held it out to her, but first. Good night, she mumbled, taking it. She slipped back into her room. A door opened behind her, her head snapped around. The other door was open. A plume of dust billowed into the hall as he pushed it wide. An ingot of moonlight spilled into the darkened interior from a window on the far side. Two years. She'd never seen anyone coming or going. She slammed her own door before he could see the stricken look on her face. She nearly tripped over the fiddle case going from the door to her little desk in the corner. Her mind was reeling. Dead memories rose, howling to the surface. Memories she'd buried deep. It was him. It was really him. Haytham. Alive. She thought about writing White Rose. They hadn't spoken since he left on campaign, but he was the only person who'd risen with her since she became Lady Moonrise. He was the only one she still knew who remembered. She'd gone to her desk and scrawled his name on one of the sheets of rosy parchment she'd paid for with hard silver. She hesitated. He was still out on the hinter. Devil only knew when he'd come riding back, his armor caked in dust from the road. A black droplet splatted on the sheet next to his fancy surname. She threw down the pen and poured herself a triple measure from the dark bottle of Kadari brandy she kept in the bottom drawer of the desk. The drink was hot and sweet and scented of honey. Sleep was slow to come that night, and when it did, it was deep and fitful, plagued by ghosts and creatures risen from the dead. Thank you guys so much for being a part of this episode. It really means the world to me. Make sure to hit the subscribe and the notification bell so that you never miss an episode. I think that the worst fantasy film adaptation would have to be Aragon. The novel written by Christopher Paolini had so much potential and I feel like the filmmakers absolutely blew it. And that's why they only made one and were not able to complete the series. What do you think? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Should they make the rest of those books into movies or should they give the first one another try? Let me know your answers in the comments and I will catch you guys next week.